Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, I'm delighted to say that on today's show, joining me on what is a humid summer morning here in the capital is Neil Palmer. Neil is the owner of Vintage Roots Limited, a specialist merchant of organic and biodynamic wines. Uh, Neil, welcome and thank you for joining us on the show. Yes, hello there. Yeah, I'm pleased, pleased to join you. Uh, thank you, Neil. Um, it's a pleasure having you with us. Um, not the nicest day for it. Seems that the rain has returned after um, a spell of good weather, but um, not to worry about that. We are indoors. Um, I have to say, we should probably first address the elephant in the room here on the show, and that's the fact that as we record this podcast on the 24th of June 2021, we are still living under some form of social restrictions due to the COVID-19 pandemic, and that has been the case now for the best part of the last 14 months. Now, looking back over this last year by and large, to what extent has the health crisis affected you and your business? Yeah, I mean, like everybody, I guess it's had a, it's had a massive effect. It's um, been a real roller coaster of a ride. Um, I mean, to come through it, you know, we've been working very hard. It's been a very intense experience. And uh, overall, we've actually done okay to pretty well out of it. Um, but uh, yeah, as I say, it's been intense. We've been short of staff. We've had COVID situations, logistics, and uh, all sorts of topsy-turvy trading over the last 15 months. And of course, it's not just COVID that's been something that you've had to grapple with this year, is it? I suppose for importers and exporters of wine produce like yourselves, Brexit might also creep into the equation as well as of January when it first came into effect. So have you seen some issues with that and almost had to face that double-pronged challenge in a way? I mean, yeah, in the wine business, yeah, that that side of things has has been a nightmare, really. Um, you know, the delays involved, uh, the paperwork, the confusion with customs, and uh, yeah, et cetera, has just been another thing on top of COVID, which we've had to deal with. Um, the lead times uh, massively extended, so our typical import from Europe, whereas it would normally be about three weeks two to three weeks on a, on a good day, uh, you know, we're looking quite often eight weeks plus and, uh, you know, sometimes even longer. So that's been difficult to cope with, really. And given the stress of that situation combined with the anxiety surrounding a global pandemic, have you found that that's had a knock-on effect on sort of staff well-being within the business and you've had to sort of carefully manage that as well? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, it's pushed everybody... Uh, to to their limits a little bit. I mean, we're quite hands-on here, so we we do a lot of uh, well, most of our own picking and packing of the boxes that get sent out direct to consumers nationwide. We've got a website. Uh, we also deal with well, the bulk of our businesses to restaurants and shops, uh, bars, hotels, that sort of thing. And uh, we take all the calls. We pack. We have our own vans. 
um, and we send out the carriers. But um, I think it's just, you know, the level of work and the intensity of it and the amount uh, has just caused us, yeah, to sort of creak at the edges a little bit. Um, but, yeah, we've got through it. Uh, but it has required sort of planning and sort of good teamwork and people covering each other's back, you know, early starts and a few late finishes. So, um, yeah, it needs must. And given the level of uncertainty that we've seen over the last 14 months, for instance, we're not entirely sure what the government's going to do. I mean, things can change very much without warning with regard to restrictions. Have you found it difficult to plan too far ahead during this time as well? Uh, Yeah, planning. I mean, I think obviously with the Brexit on top, you know, planning for stock requirements has been very tricky and we've just been sort of bulking up our our reserves a little bit as best we can. Um, I mean, with wine, obviously, you can make alternatives, replacements to other products sometimes, so that that's helped. Um, but we've done pretty much the same as, as we normally do. I mean, we can't travel, so I mean, in terms of, you know, researching our new products, um, you know, the new vintages, looking for new vineyards and, and, and good wines and other products to list, we've, we've had to do all that, you know, on the phone and obviously samples arrive by post um so we've done a lot of tasting and things as normal but it's always it's all been a bit more haphazard and a little bit more difficult to deal with but at least we have been able to carry on with it which is which is which has been great and under the government's current roadmap out of social restrictions we're seeing the hospitality sector returning now albeit at a limited capacity has that started to see more of an uptake within business for yourselves as a result of that? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, we're certainly seeing a lot of places opening up again now. And, you know, everyone's aware that the restrictions are continuing and so places aren't able to operate at full capacity, which is very difficult for them. But um, so our business has swung back in. The restaurant trade, the on-trade is, is picking up and uh, hopefully that will, you know, continue. So... Whereas at the beginning of lock, you know, when lockdown first happened, uh, you know, the huge shift was to the website, and uh, you know we were we were getting probably four to five times our normal levels of orders via the website, whereas the restaurants were all closed. So, you know, yeah, everybody wants to be dealt, you know, to be seen. Our sales team are out there working hard, and they're trying to get around all the all, all the contacts that we have to uh, you know set up wine lists and make sure that the supply is, is happening. Um, it's just the speed at which it happens has been quite difficult to cope with, but uh, we, you know we're getting there now. But hospitality has obviously been through a very, very difficult time. Mm. And now we're hearing about the staff shortages, and so it's uh, it's more difficult for them, to be honest. Yeah, it's a huge challenge for the hospitality sector, and it's going to need certainly a lot of support over the next few months as it does sort of return to full flow. Um, in the meantime, businesses like yourselves, as we've seen over the last 14 months, have really had to adapt and to innovate to sort of keep things ticking over. And the way that you've gone about doing that, of course, is looking more toward the e-commerce side of things, as you mentioned briefly just now. Um, therefore, coming out of this pandemic experience and having to adapt to a whole new reality even though it has been a very challenging time, would you say you've ultimately learned a great deal from the experience that you've had? Yeah, I think so, yeah. I mean, it's, you always learn, don't you, along the way, what you can actually do and achieve, you know, without your normal framework around you, whether that be 
you know, being able to hop on a plane and visit a vineyard, you know, personally, you know, you can adapt. Um, you can, you can, you know, change your meeting schedules. You can do stuff on the phone, on Zoom. You can uh, get more out of your team, you know, work together. And, um, yeah, it has been a bit of a learning curve there. And, uh, obviously, the website, the move to online, we're going to invest um, in a new setup on our website and the progressive web app later this year. Um, and in other areas of business, we're just doing as much as we can. But um, And we will be looking to recruit later this year as well as we come out of the pandemic. Yeah, I certainly hope that that will prove to be the case because there's still a little bit of uncertainty there as to whether, of course, July the 19th, now the new Freedom Day, is going to go ahead entirely as planned. And let us indeed hope that it does. And I do want to talk about the future, Neil, just before we do wrap things up, because I am conscious that we are beginning to run short of time. Assuming that we do leave social restrictions behind on schedule, where ideally would you like your business to be by this time in 2022, do you think? And what are you really hoping to achieve over the next 12 months? Uh, yes, good question. Uh, just to focus really on the quality of the range of products we do and to improve our offering, um, you know, that's always key. You know, people are going to come back to us and keep trading with us if our product range is not uh, tip-top and our service levels. There's been all sorts of other challenges we haven't talked about. You know, the shortage in packaging materials, the boxes, the supply chains are all under a lot of pressure at the moment. So at the moment, you know, it's, it's getting all that uh, logistics side uh, and products in the right place and getting it in time to, to our customers is primary importance as well as developing the website. And uh, as I say, maybe taking on uh, a couple of new recruits to help us uh, do things better here. Yeah, I certainly wish you all the luck in the world in being able to fulfil those ambitions, Neil, over the next few months. And I think as we start to move into that post-COVID world and we understand what shape the economic recovery is taking as well, I'd certainly relish the opportunity to welcome you back onto the programme and just catch up on how things are getting on within the business at that point. Yeah, absolutely fine. That'd be a pleasure. It'd be a real pleasure for me as well, Neil. I've thoroughly enjoyed your company on the programme today. It's been a real, real pleasure having you with us. And just because we're not quite out of the woods with the COVID situation just yet, um, please do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on. I think we're almost there and better days certainly are ahead of us. Hope so. Cheers. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure for me to welcome Neil Palmer, owner of Vintage Roots Limited, onto today's programme. And coming up next on the show today, we'll be joined by Leaders Council Chairman and former Education Secretary, Lord David Blunkett, who will be discussing his take on the events of the COVID-19 pandemic and his hopes for the weeks and months ahead of us. That is coming up on the programme now. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the 
government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did want to do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? 
Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different hi- interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. 
Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking 
the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. But it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticize the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of, 
thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be 
substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. So Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand 
and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one key, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the leaders' council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage. 
have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.